I was like a MacGyver. Well, see, there's one way. You take a patient that's got heart disease. You can take the spinal fluid and drain enough of the spinal fluid to cause them to have a heart attack. But with the cyanide, that was a quick death. I was careful with my dosage. I didn't want no uh, feedback coming towards me. Welcome to Stat, I'm telling you all Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre Karen Wickham, yeah she used to work in ER And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved Ay, Funny and scary at the same time Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying <laughs> So tune in to Stat, if you dare Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere <laughs> Yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickey. I'm coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and with me here today is the beautiful Mary Gardner. Oh, thank you. Hello, everybody. So. Good day. Good evening. Good afternoon. Yes, good morning. Good morning, wherever you are. So, that was a bit spine-chilling. <laughs> Uh, spine, yeah. Yeah. Let me just drain some cerebral spinal fluid out of it. Give me a heart attack. I just need to do a procedure. Oh, heart attack. Yeah. Psycho. See, this is what I'm talking about. Medical serial killers know exactly what to do. They know too much, so that's a problem. Yeah, and they can do it for a long time. And yeah. usually what gets them caught is that they just get cocky. Arrogant about it. Yeah, Or they yeah. can't control it, and they're just like, anymore, anymore, anymore. So, yeah. That was uh, Donald Harvey. Yes, remind me to never, ever, ever get sick. Hey, <laughs> you got me. I know that. No, I'm just kidding. I'll, I'll just only hurt you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Look at, you've got me. I know, you protect And me. I will go wherever you, okay, knock on wood, head, whatever, that you never get sick. I get, oh, I get so suspicious, superstitious. But. I will be right there, and no one's gonna mess with uh, mess with you or anybody that I love. I know that. <laughs> okay, so Donald Harvey, let's talk about him. This is part two. We last yeah. left off talking about all of his victims from Marymount Hospital that he worked at. Around the time that he killed his last three patients there, his life was falling apart. He no longer wanted to be with Vernon. Remember Vernon, the. Uh, Mortuary dude. Right. Weird. Yeah. And uh, he didn't want to be with him because his sexual appetites were becoming too violent. <laughs> you know. Which um, one? Donald or Vernon? Vernon. Oh, okay. So Vernon was just getting to be too oh, much Oh, right. Yeah, I kind of yeah. wanted to do he some. He was into some. And, and Donald was just wasn't into that kind of thing. BDSM stuff. So he started drinking heavily and he was becoming more and more depressed. So if you remember, he was renting an apartment from Randy White's mother. And Randy White was that ex-co-worker of his that had raped him. Okay, yeah. Okay, so he was in a, a bad situation there. Okay, so he... All around. He was depressed. <laughs> he was living in this apartment building. He felt that, you know, there was that over his head. So what did he do? He started a fire in one of the empty apartments in that building. It was a suicide attempt because he was hoping to die by asphyxiation. Instead, he was found and the fire was put out. He was charged with arson and had to pay a $50 fine. So after that, he went to Frankfort, Kentucky to apply for a job at the state forestry service. And another straight... Just so much bizarre stuff happens. So, it's like, 
Okay, that's a bit of a yeah leap. Yeah, yeah. So this is where something really another really bizarre. Like, all right, I'm just gonna tell it. He um for some reason he visited a family by the name last name Hodges, and while he was there, he slept with the daughter Ruth Ann, and he got her pregnant. He was blackout drunk. The child was put up for adoption and he never heard of them again. And he also admitted to fathering another child, which I'll get into. So Mr. Hodges called the police and they picked him up. And while he was there at the station, he confessed to murdering 15 people from, at Marymount and being part of a coven. So the police did not believe that he killed 15 people, but they really wanted to know about this coven. (laughs) Um, He was being charged with burglary. So I guess he stole something from them. And uh, the police said they would drop all the charges if they, he would just tell them about the coven. Um, So he said he was, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to know. And he did. And he continued to say, but look, but I killed 15 people. And they're like, no, whatever. We don't believe you. Yeah. So he quit Marymount in uh, March 27th, 1971. And he began to see a psychiatrist at the Cumberland River Comprehensive Care Center in London, Kentucky. You got Frankfurt, Kentucky, and you got London, Kentucky. (laughs) It's all, you know, Europe and Kentucky. Wasn't there some sort of investigation into these deaths at Marymount? No. Remember, first of all, they had nuns that were just like, you know what, just sweep it under the rug. Then he had that, there was that crazy, crazy nurse, Rudd, that was, you know, um, like his superior who was like a major drug addict and in the coven. And she was likely like killing some patients herself. So that place was just sort of like, you know. Uh, terrifying don't talk about it didn't happen right oh they're just old people anyway right yeah so um so that's why there was no investigation there so on june 16th 1971 he enlisted in the u.s air force and i find that a lot of serial killers do that and i don't know if it's because they're trying to like rein in their feelings their obsessions so they're like okay if i join the military i can just get put on the straight and narrow i can be disciplined. Yeah, discipline little crap out of me. Basically. The other thing is, too, they generally don't last while they're there. So yeah. anyway, he, he said he just wanted to get away from everything. And it worked out well at first. He did well in basic, basic training. He liked the regiment of it. And um, and then when he finished basic training, he was working as a clerk. But soon after that, everything began to crumble. He started to drink heavily again and continued to practice the occult. And he was having sex with one of the fellow military guys. And he kept on getting these, um, what do you call it? Uh, intrusive thoughts to kill him. <laughs> Jesus. So what he did is he tried to overdose with NyQuil. <laughs> NyQuil? Oh, interesting choice. You know, that mo- most of these, like, uh, help you sleep ones, I just Ugh. have gravel. How much NyQuil in them. would you have to drink? I mean, in here in Canada, it's, it's over the counter. It's a uh, anti-nauseant, mm-hmm. and Still, you um, have to take a shit ton of it. Oh, you know what? I took care of a patient in the ER that overdosed on gravel. Diamond hydronate is also what it's known as. I forget what what the uh, name is in the in the U.S. Anyway, is it Dramadol? No, 
Anyway. Dra- um, Dramamine. Dramamine. Dramamine, yeah. I think. Yeah, Dramamine. So it has, like, it's like the sister brother of Benadryl. You know, Benadryl can make you, like, wired. Well, so does Gravol. There's a point where it stops the nausea or slows down the nausea, and then it uh, it makes you sleepy and can help, and, you know, you get sleepy. But then yeah. there, there's a threshold that passes it where you are, like, jittery, like, can't stop moving any part of your body, completely methed out, hallucinating. It, it's It's awful. And this can go on for three, four days. Mm. I took care of someone in the ER. We couldn't keep the leads on their body. They were sweating so much because they were like uh, constant um, moving around and spasmy and stuff like that. It was, it was awful. Horrible. So I was like, you know, the, the dose is 25 to 50 milligrams. And I'm like, I'll take 12.5. <laughs> like it was so terrifying. So yeah, he uh, tried to kill himself and uh, he did not succeed. But it was after that that the military looked a little bit more into his past and found out that he had uh, a mental health uh, admission and a criminal record. So he got a medical discharge and was released on March 9th, 1972. He went home to his family, and after a couple days, he got into a huge fight with his parents, after which he went to his room and attempted suicide again with an overdose of pills. I don't know which one. Um, His father checked in on him about an hour later and found him unconscious. And he was treated in the ER until he was stabilized. And then he was transferred to um, a VA hospital in Lexington, Kentucky for psychiatric treatment. Now, the fight that they got into was over him being gay Mm -hmm. and leaving the military. They thought, okay, well, our gay son, now he's in the military. That'll straighten him out. But, you know, to them, it was like, okay, well, that was your last chance sort of thing. So he was in, he was a patient in the hospital for three months and then an outpatient for a year and a half. And when he was finally out, his family told him that he was not allowed to return home because they didn't agree with his homosexuality. So he moved into a YMCA and got a job um, at the Cardinal Hill Convalescent Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, as well as the Good Samaritan Hospital. So his time there was uneventful. He he was not m- murdery. <laughs> He wasn't active. Yeah. Uh, so he was dating, dating a man by the name of Dave at the time. And Dave, you know my feelings about Dave's. Mm-hmm. So are anybody named Dave out there? I'm sure you're wonderful. I hope you are. But I've never met a Dave that I've liked. And I've met a lot of Daves. Please, I hope you're the exception. If you're listening to the show, of course you are. <laughs> yeah, of course no you're. bad Daves could listen to this show. No. Um, so anyway, Dave practiced Satanism. Of course he did. And um, he was also at the same time dating a former patient of the Good Samaritan Hospital by the name of Russell Addison. So Dave moved in with Russell and they lived together for a while. And then they went to a gay bar and met, he met another guy by the name of Ken Estes and they became lovers and then they moved to Cincinnati. So this, you know, I am going somewhere with this. This isn't just, just like a serial, like, you know, days, uh, gaze of our lives. <laughs> it's queer as folk. <laughs> Welcome to the gaze of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they wait a couple of weeks before they move in together. Lesbian second date's done. 
you know. Uh-huh. Come on, that's the known thing. Oh, no. First date, you fall in love. Second date, you rent a U-Haul. <laughs> you go trucking. You move in together. Okay, so they became lovers and moved in together into an apartment in Cincinnati. And he got a job at the St. Luke Hospital in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Their relationship was unstable, and they moved around quite a bit, and the relationship eventually fizzled out. Wait, who is this, Donald? Donald and Ken Estes. So, oh, I'm confused. I thought you were talking about the Russell guy. No, 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 no. Met Dave, Satan worshiper. Oh, right. And then while he's with Dave, he meets Russell. Okay. They have a relationship, move in together, then that fizzles, then he meets Ken Estes. Gotcha. They become lovers and then move into an apartment in Cincinnati. Okay. Sorry. That's okay. Then he got a job at St. Luke's Hospital in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Now, like I said, their relationship was unstable. It fizzled out. And as it dissolved, Harvey was studying Satanism. And he wanted to become a member of the coven that his former lover, Dave, was still a member of. Okay? Okay. In June 1977, he was initiated into the coven. So the head of the coven was Gavin and Yvonne Frost. And Yvonne was a high priestess. So people get initiated in pairs, a man and a woman. So he had, there was a woman that wanted to get initiated. And so they just sort of paired up. Now her name was Jan. And there was another couple by the name of Bill and Alice. The thing is, they had to have sex with each other. That's why it's the man and woman thing in order to be part of the ritual. But you can't have sex with your partner. So, I know, this is just, why am I talking about this? Because it's it's interesting as hell. (laughs) I know, this is like, why am I talking about covens? Because it's interesting. In case you guys are wondering. So they swap partners, basically. (laughs) So they swap partners and, and Donald slept with Alice and she got pregnant. And that was the second child. Oh, gosh. He never heard or saw her or the child. Or her again or the child. I was going to say, for a gay man, he sure impregnates people yeah. pretty easily. <laughs> um, Not that that makes But for a reason, but... you know. One time, because he was blackout drunk, and the second time as well. I mean, <laughs> what else are you going to do? I was being you want to be you a satanic wanna... coven. Exactly. <laughs> what do you want me to do? Can you imagine that's your, your, your parents? Yeah. <laughs> Well, my mom was a Satan worshiper. No, well, my, my dad, Gavin, he was a hell of a guy. And my mom, man, she was very powerful. In fact, she was a high priestess. Mm-hmm. Okay. But my biological dad is a serial killer. Yeah. He's gay. Yeah. And like satanic cults. Yeah. Um, okay. This is where it starts to get bizarre. It wasn't already bizarre. <laughs> it was, but listen to this. Donald would meet someone that night that would have a major influence on him and who he would kill in the future. That person's name was Duncan. Duncan was a doctor who had been killed in World War II. He was an underworld spirit guide. Oh, so is that during the ritual that that happened and he met him? Yeah, that you get um, a spirit guide. Okay. You know, assigned to you. One or two becomes your, in this case, your underworld spirit guide. So anyway, he, (laughs) moving on, 
He didn't like his job as a clerk at St. Luke's Hospital, but he was afraid to look for work elsewhere because of his past, because of merriment. Being a patient at a mental health facility, the military, all that kind of stuff. His criminal record. So he was like, you know, I'm afraid. They're not going to hire me anywhere. He applied for a position at the VA hospital in Cincinnati anyway. And like many other stories we've talked about um, with hospitals and medical-related service jobs, that they require very little information from the past employer. It's a don't ask, don't tell culture. They don't want any lawsuits or bad press. So pretty much what they ask is, if you tell the... Your prospective employer that I worked there for a year and a half, and I was a janitor. They'll call and say, yep, he was here for a year and a half, and he was a janitor. Why did he leave? Personal reasons. And and that's that's it. So short of killing somebody. Well, and this was the 70s in the States. Yeah, it still happens, though. Um, Only because I've done a lot of reading about previous like more new cases where it's like well how did that person get hired again and, and it's come up I, I don't have any direct experience but i heard the horror stories of it anyway okay um so that, like i said all they wanted to do is uh confirm his dates his position and his reason for living which was personal the real obstacle was getting a release from the governor so that he could work at a va hospital not another hospital because he was actually treated at a va hospital as a psychiatric patient and he got it so um he got hired at that job so he began working at the cincinnati va hospital in september 1975 and his job title was critical care janitor he worked in an area that the staff called death alley which was a floor where patients were critically ill and they were expected to die the patients required total care and many had dementia uh Injuries that they could not recover from, um, and stage deadly diseases like cancer. Most were in pain, and some were in excruciating pain. At the time, he was a janitor, so he didn't do any direct patient care. But because of that, it was wouldn't be unusual for him to be anywhere at any given time, cleaning, right? Mm-hmm. So he did have access to all the patients' rooms. And his first victim in many years, was Joseph Harris. He was 40 years old. He had cirrhosis of the liver. He was in a ton of pain on oxygen. And what did he do? His old thing of decreasing his oxygen flow so that um, he, you know, didn't get enough oxygen and died a heart attack or a respiratory arrest. Um, and there had been five years since his last victim. So he'd gone five years in between. And again, you see that happen with serial killers. They, they often have a break. But he was like a junkie. And once he killed Joseph Harris, his desire to kill was fierce. He confessed to killing four more men after Joseph Harris, but he didn't really remember the details. And this was James Twitty, James Ritter, Harry Rhodes, and Sterling Moore. I like to list every person whose name I can find just so that at least her name is recognized in this podcast because, again, you often know the, hear all about the, the killer, but not about the victims. So while working at the VA hospital, he joined a neo-Nazi group called the National Socialist Party. He was very interested in Hitler and the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. So he would attend uh, highly secretive meetings uh, in the 
leader of the group's basement. No one knew each other's names. They all had aliases. And his was Frederick Lampstadt because he felt it sounded like a very good German name. He also concealed his homosexuality from them because he probably would have been beaten within an inch of his life. He stated that while he was in this group that he had actually met David Duke, the Grand Wizard of the KKK. Yeah, that's something to brag about, right? So he handed out flyers and spray-painted horrible and hateful derogatory words um, and sayings on Jewish-owned businesses and temples. And um, he said that he had attained the rank of major. Oh, sick fucker. So what are your hobbies, Donald? Well, oh, Satanism. Um, 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 Nazism. Nazism, yeah. <laughs> Um, White supremacy. Yeah, I dabbled in serial killing a little bit. So by the time he started working at the VA hospital, he was very promiscuous, having unprotected sexual um, encounters while the AIDS epidemic was raging on. He was lucky that he didn't get it. Right. You know, the, 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 what we know now isn't the same of what we knew then. Right. And it was when it really was killing people that it, and people were dying, that it became really scary. Yeah. Right. Like, oh shit. And of course it was always, you know, oh it's gay men that that uh that causes um mess. They brought it which is, you know, brought it uh, upon themselves. It was unprotected sex that caused the transmission and, you know, IV drug use and and things like that sharing needles, but you know, anyway. Okay, so he started dating a guy by the name of Doug Hill. Doug was another person that was part of that coven and that uh, he did occult rituals with their relationship was tumultuous and it had become violent once doug tried to run donald over with his car and he got a pretty bad scrape on his leg and donald retaliated by lacing doug's ice cream with arsenic doug ended up being treated in the er Messing with the wrong dude. Don't piss off Donnie. Um, One of Donald's favorite gay bars was called the Golden Lion. Uh, It was there that he met Carl Howler, who would become his first serious boyfriend. Carl was a hairstylist with his own shop. He also owned his own small apartment building. And he was doing really well financially. And he was also an arrogant narcissist. So, you know, ooh, look, it's Carl. He's got the money, he's got the style, and he's got the talk and the walk with the talk. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, so, um, yeah, he was considered a catch. Um, So they had an intense relationship, and after six weeks, Donald moved into Carl's apartment, um, into the small apartment building that he owned. That was on August 1st, 1980. They fell into sort of a domestic bliss, but it didn't last long. Two things were at play here. Carl was constantly cheating on Donald. That was one thing. And the second thing was his best friend, Diane Alexander, Carl's best friend. And she was constantly around and Diane and Donald were jealous of each other. They just wanted the other one gone. (laughs) So let's, let's talk about the domestic Uh bliss that ends with Carl. Carl had Mondays off and on this day he would go to the park that were frequented by other gay men and engage in, in sex. And he had been arrested for public indecency many times before. So Donald started putting arsenic in Carl's food and drinks. Every Sunday, 
just enough to make him sick with diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting so that he was too sick to go out on Mondays. Well, so how did he one get... way to keep a wandering yeah. man home. <laughs> yeah. Aside from working on the floor as a janitor, he did some shifts in the lab at the hospital, um, and he was transferred from the palliative floor to work as a, a, a diener, also known as a autopsy assistant in the morgue. Okay. But back in the morgue. Um, <laughs> so before poisoning Carl, he tested the arsenic on himself to get the right dose but that's being really committed i'm gonna poison myself to make sure that i have just enough to poison that person because they pissed me off he kept an unlabeled bottle of arsenic in the basement and he poisoned carl on sunday nights or when carl pissed him off in time carl even started to show signs of chronic arsenic poisoning um, like having numbness in his hands and feet and, you know, those striations that uh, you get in the f- fingers. Um, they're like white lines that you see. Um, those are arsenic deposits actually in the nails and uh, dermatitis. He had weakness in the small muscles of his hands and feet as well. Um, so, yeah, he was showing the signs. He visited many doctors to find out why he was so sick. And they actually believe that his illness was caused by the chemicals he worked with at his salon. So in a way, they're saying, well, you're getting poisoned by this. But he was actually being poisoned by his boyfriend. Donald uh, felt justified in poisoning Carl um, because in his twisted mind, he believed he was doing um, this for his good. He said he wanted to keep him out of trouble. Didn't want him to get him arrested again. Or get a disease. Yeah. He was just didn't want him to do it. <laughs> so now let's talk about problematic Diane Alexander. The problem with Diane. And this is why I brought up why he was, that he had ch- changed to work in the lab and also to work as a morgue assistant. Okay. Donald and Diane did not like each other. They argued and fought constantly, insulting and undermining each other. Harvey believed that Diane was trying to break him and Carl up. So he decided that he needed to get rid of her. So one of Harvey's jobs in the lab was to dispose of the waste from the lab. (laughs) He centrifuged a small amount of blood from a patient who had hepatitis B, and he took it home. He mixed the sample in Diane's salad dressing. And she got hepatitis B. Wow. She was misdiagnosed um, with pancreatitis. And he was so, you know, smug and proud, thinking, yeah, you know what? I I fooled the doctors. No one knew what I did. That's just diabolical. He also put acrylic acid in her drinks. Um, Acrylic acid? Yeah, like acrylic like you know, used in plastics and paints and stuff okay. like that. He, and then her hands and feet started to swell up. Like he just, he wanted her to suffer. He also tried to infect her with the AIDS virus that he stole from the lab, but she didn't get it. Run, Diane. <laughs> Run. Run. Uh, Donald also poisoned Carl's friends who attended a dinner party that he hosted. He sprinkled arsenic on the food and everyone but him and Carl got sick because they didn't eat the food. And it was chalked up as food poisoning. Now, there was a tenant 
on the second floor of this apartment by the name of Helen Metzger. And by all means, it sounds like that Helen, like she was a nice lady. He, him, uh, her and Donald got along well until she started asking questions um, about where Carl was getting money to renovate the apartment. Um, and he saw it as a threat. He brought her leftovers that were laced with arsenic. He also laced a, a jar of mayo with arsenic in her fridge. So he didn't just like bring her over something to eat. He poured it in mayo so she could be using it at any given time. Okay. And a few weeks after all this, he gave her um, a pie. And this was also laced with arsenic. And he said he just wanted to make her sick. But he miscalculated and she developed paralysis in her limbs that led to her being unable to breathe on her own. Then she started to bleed internally and she died. But no homicide was detected. He was a pallbearer at her funeral. Jesus. And the so story was, she, was she like an older lady? Do you know? No, she, it, from what, what it sounds like, she wasn't like an elderly lady or anything. Um, okay. She just, he killed her, poisoned her. Um, Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. Her family gathered at her apartment after the funeral. Oh, God, no. And they made tuna fish sandwiches with the mayo. Oh, God, no. Anyone who ate the sandwich became ill, but none of them died. Let that sink in, that whole scenario. Just evil. Just evil. Oh, yeah, I forgot the mayo. Don't don't forget the mayo. Mm -hmm. No mayo. Um, Carl's father, Henry, was chronically ill in the hospital. And on one visit, he told Harvey that he wanted to die. And so Donald laced a milkshake with arsenic and gave it to Harvey, and he died four days later. Now, people that are suffering will say, I just want to die. Like, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. And maybe in that moment they mean it. But I think a majority of the time they don't mean it. They're just they're tired. They're in pain. They, they don't want to do that anymore. So he makes, you know, he makes a decision for them. Mm. The next member of Carl's family to die was his brother-in-law, Howard Vetter. He kept um, wood alcohol. Apparently it's, it's very poisonous. Um, and he kept it in a vodka bottle in the cupboard by the bar. <laughs> so that sounds safe. Yeah. Too. Yeah. So Carl made Vetter uh, a couple of drinks, um, and he became very sick, sick and died a week later. And it was ruled a heart attack. So I don't know Wait, if he, so who? Carl Car- mixed a drink th- with the wood alcohol, wood grain alcohol that was in a vodka bottle. It's clear. Okay, so that Donald did put in there. He put it in there. But I don't oh, think okay, he sorry. intentionally said, okay, I'm putting this here and I'm going to kill someone with it. It was just sort of like he grabbed the bottle and gave him some drinks and didn't realize that he was actually poisoning him. So he inadvertently... Kill him. Yeah. Carl inadvertently killed his brother-in-law. Yeah. But it was because of Donald's yes. keeping... Oh, Jesus. Um, Diabolical just doesn't cover this guy. Like, yeah. He just... There's like tentacles of evilness just going oh, out of, from all over him. 100%. Um, so one of Donald's ex-lovers, Jane Peluso, became a patient at the VA hospital that he worked at. So James was like, Donald, I haven't seen you in ages. I want to come visit you and uh, Carl at your apartment. And so he went over and he wanted to spill the beans about their 15-year-long off-and-on relationship. But Harvey didn't want Carl to know about any of this. 
So he put arsenic in Peluso's food and drink while he visited, and he succumbed to the poison and died. It was ruled a cardiac arrest due to natural causes. (laughs) Next, an elderly couple by the name of Edward and Mary Wilson moved into the apartment that Helen Metzger lived in. Edward made the mistake of complaining to Carl about the utility bill being too high. He felt that he was being cheated. So Donald decided that the Wilsons had to go. So he acted the friendly neighbor and gave them some arsenic-laced food. He also poisoned their dog. Mary lived, she recovered, and Edward and the dog died. Doesn't anybody see any sort of patterns here that people around Donald are dying? Yeah. I know. Or become violently ill. But, you know, it's just sort of like, it's... People don't think, oh, there's a serial killer in the mist. Or, you know, people get sick. Things happen. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd think. Like, holy crap, I'm sick. My best friend is sick. I got hepatitis. The lady upstairs died. The new neighbors died. <laughs> the dog died. The friends died. In July 1985, the security staff at the VA hospital that he worked at got a tip about Donald and his suspicious behavior. So when he was leaving one night... They said, we want to see what's in your duffel bag, you know, that he brought to and from work. They opened it up and they saw that um, he had a 38 caliber loaded handgun in there. And also books from the hospital library. And he said it was an accident. They went through his locker. What do you think he found in his locker? Arsenic? Mm, Try again. Trophies? A specimen of a piece of liver mounted on paraffin wax to be examined microscopically for histology. He said he was taking it home to study it for a course he was <laughs> enrolled. Can you imagine opening up the lotter lot <laughs> there's a human hunk of liver. <sighs> oh sorry, Donald. God, my bad. Carry on. He had been stealing body parts for satanic rituals. He admitted to later. He was fired. Mm -hmm. But even though he was fired, he was able to easily get hired again as a nursing assistant at the Donald Drake Memorial Hospital in uh, Cincinnati on December 5th, 1985. The same don't ask, don't tell. It was a state-funded long-term care hospital. And this would be the last hospital that he would work for. It would be his last job outside of prison. (sighs) He would go on a manic, deranged killing spree, murdering at least 24 helpless victims. He started work on February 24th, 1986. After training, he was assigned to work on a long-term care unit that would be what we would call a palliative unit now. The patients were ter- total care and states, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, comatose, uh, uh, terrible car accidents with traumatic brain injuries, end stage cancer, severe disabilities. Um, so it was, you know, end of, end of life care. Mm-hmm. He hated working there. He said he found it depressing. Mm-hmm. And he didn't see any point to these people being kept alive. So his first victim was Nathaniel Watson. 65 years old. He was semi-comatose, being fed by a G-tube in total care. For some reason, Harvey didn't like Watson and decided to kill him. 
During a shift in April, he entered the ward room where he shared with three other patients. He wet a plastic garbage bag and placed it over his face and, and pushed it up his nose and in his mouth down his throat. As he was suffocating, Donald heard some movement in the hallway, so he stopped, threw out the garbage bag, and left the room. He tried this again at the end of his shift, and it happened again. So he tried to kill this man twice that day. The next day he tried again, he placed, did the same thing, and also put a pillow over his head. And this time he was successful. Oh, he then repositioned Mr. Watson, placed the pillow under his head, and threw the garbage bag out. He left the room and carried on with the rest of his shift. A nurse found Mr. Watson uh, deceased in his bed 45 minutes later. He helped prepare the body for the morgue. His death was ruled natural. Four days later, he killed Leon Nelson, 64 years old. He had a brain cyst, many operations, paralyzed, no use of his limbs, semi-conscious, non-verbal, palliative care, total care. He killed him in the same manner as he killed Nathaniel Watson. Um, and he was worried about this one because Nelson showed some signs of uh, being smothered. But, you know, no suspicion was raised and his death was ruled natural. Next, we have Virgil Weddle, 81 years old. He had severe heart disease. Donald liked Weddle, but didn't want him to suffer. So he decided to murder him. He bought some rat poison and in, in a vial to the hospital. Mm -hmm. The thing is, Harvey thought that rat poison contained arsenic, but it actually contains warfarin, yeah. also known as Coumadin. It's a blood thinner. Yeah. So you give it in a huge dose... You bleed to death. You, you hemorrhage. Just hemorrhage it, right? Yeah. yeah. So he put some of the rat poisoning in his pistachio pudding and fed it to him. And within 10 minutes, he had difficulty breathing, collapsed, and died shortly thereafter. And it was ruled a heart attack. The next day, he killed Lawrence Bernardson, 60 years old. He had a stroke. He was there for rehab. And he did the same thing. Uh, rat poison laced pudding. He was he got very ill. He was then transferred to a different part of the nursing home, and he died shortly thereafter. On May 2nd, 1986, he broke up with Carl. He had enough of his arrogance and cheating, and the murders really started to get out of control. Not that they weren't before, but they yeah. he was like a runaway train. Now, I just want to mention... there were no autopsies done on these? Not up until this point? They weren't suspicious? Nope. Because they're palliative, right? right. They're, they're expected to die. Okay? And they have so many comorbid conditions that anything could be considered a cause of death. Do you know what I mean? So during this murder spree, Donald was performing satanic rituals and consulting Duncan on which patients he should kill. That was the uh, ghost spirit, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. His underworld spirit guide. Right. He was also bringing home trophies from the patients, like cookies from a wake. And he ate them during one of the ceremonies. Body fluids, locks of hair, knitted booties, and a lap blanket. He was using these in rituals. Doris Nelly was 65 years old. She had lung cancer with mets to the brain. She was total care, and he put cyanide in her apple juice, and she died the next day. No autopsy. Edward Shrebus, 60 years old, stroke, aphasia, arsenic in his soup, died days later. No autopsy. Willie Johnson, 59 
He tried and failed to kill him four times with arsenic in his food, and he just gave up. June 29th, 1986, Robert Crockett, 80 years old, end-stage organic brain disease. He was total care, terrible bed sores and sepsis. He was on IV fluids and antibiotics, and he injected the cyanide into his IV. Um, one of the nurses on duty found him, and but because the patient was, because he was a DNR, they didn't do anything to resuscitate him, and he died shortly after. Wait, so found him like in the throes of dying? Uh, yeah, kind of thing? yeah okay. like respiratory arrest, cardiac, you know. So, um, so Harvey helped prepare the body for the morgue. So he pulled the IVs and all the tubes okay, and he threw them out. So there's no evidence, no (laughs) autopsy. Now there were, there were some rumblings on the floor that there were a large number of deaths while he was on duty and they were just like, Oh, you killed another one, Donald. And he's like, yes. Um, on August 17th, he bought a trailer and moved out. So he set this trailer up now that he was on his own. You know, he's, he had like a ritual area. So this is where he was really ramping up the rituals and consulting Duncan on who he should kill next. Next person he killed was Donald Barney, 61 years old. He was a victim of robbery. Like, so he was robbed and, and beaten within an inch of his life. Oh, he had a major a head injury mm-hmm. and he was... You know, he had, you know, G-tube, IVs, uh, trach, all those things. So he, he, he tried something new. He injected the cyanide into his feeding tube, but he also decided to inject it in his buttock. He died within five minutes, but the injection site had turned black. So this is one of the things that he experienced or was dabbling in and he saw holy crap it left a big black mark there but because he was so covered in bed sores it went unnoticed they just figured it was a part of that so no autopsy ruled out a sepsis james wood 60s stroke dementia g-tube trach put cyanide in the g-tube he was found by the nurse alive but um he didn't have a dnr he was sent to the ER, resuscitated, but died a few days later. Hmm. Next was Ernest Frey, 80, Alzheimer's G-tube. Um, and here's the thing. He was a he was sort of friends with this, this man. And he just ended up being admitted to the hospital for chronic, you know, care. So, you know, he felt sorry for him because he was his friend. Yeah, I was going to say, was that like an angel of death kind of thing or something? But there's nothing, like, you. there's no way of escaping Donald Harvey if he got in his head. He could do it because he didn't like you. He could do it because he liked you. Right. Like, yeah. wanted to end his suffering. He could do it because Duncan told him so. I mean, it was, you know. So there was no autopsy. And by this point, he's getting really cocky. He's feeling Mm -hmm. invincible that no one can touch him. The next person he killed was Milton Cantor. He was 85 years old. He had a stroke, but he was alert and oriented. And he was able to talk. And him and Donald got along really well. They talked baseball, all that kind of thing. They, he was like, he liked this guy. But he didn't like his wife, Goldie. He thought she was a pain in the ass. <laughs> so because of this, he decided that he had to kill him because his wife was too much of a pain in the ass and was causing him problems and oh yeah he's he's sick too i mean he just threw that you know angel of mercy thing at the last minute 
And so he um, he fed him through the G-tube and, and uh, he died. It was cyanide. And of course he threw out the G-tube and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. after. Because he was preparing the body for the morgue, yep. which he does. Roger Evans. Oh, convenient. Yeah. The next person was Roger Evans, 74 years old, stroke, G-tube. So you've seen these patients are, are you know, the, the same sort of um, long-term care, but now they're at the point where they're very chronically end stage ill. And they need like pretty much total care. They do, yeah. So um, stroke, G-tube. He put cyanide in the G-tube and left the room. A nurse came by, found him. They tried to resuscitate him, and he died a few uh, hours later. Um, there was an autopsy, but it was ruled a heart attack. So they're not expecting to look for murder. So they say, okay, this is what it was. Next was Claiborne Kendrick, 69 years old, ex-attorney. He had multiple strokes, total care, blind, with minimal awareness. G-tube and G-tube. He injected cyanide into the G-tube. And this time he also injected it directly into his testicles. He died 15 minutes later. No autopsy, sepsis. Now he's just, he's just not just killing now. He's torturing. Mm-hmm. Next was Albert Buhlman. Alzheimer's total care, cyanide in a glass of water, died later that day. William Collins, 90, dementia, total care, cyanide in orange juice. He went into respiratory distress Ambulance was called. He died en route. No autopsy. Henry Cody, 78 years old. Total care, septic, G-tube. He put it in his G-tube. He died later that day. No autopsy. Mose Thompson, 65, stroke. Total care, G-tube, cyanide into the G-tube. No autopsy. Otis Day, 72 years old, stroke. Total care, oxygen dependent, chronic heart disease, NG-tube. Cyanide injected into the feeding bag. Died shortly after. So the evidence was right there. I lost track of how many people it is now. Well, like I said, I like to acknowledge the victims. No, I know that. It's just like, it's just Mm -hmm. like one after the other. Like, like, uh, yeah. Next, I I get that it was people that you aren't expecting to get better. So, but still, like, if it's like always on his shift, you'd be kind of like, huh. Yeah. Maybe. The next is Cleo Fish, 67 years old, organic brain disease, total care. He put a cyanide, uh, he put cyanide into cranberry juice. Talk about cranberry cocktail. She <laughs> died shortly after, um, and he took a lock of her hair for a ritual. Oh, Jesus. Um, the next two were Harold White and John Oldenkirk. They were chronic care, and he poisoned them over a period of time. Every day he worked, he put poison in their food, but they didn't die, so he stopped. In January 1987, he killed Leo Parker. He had a brain tumor, was terminally ill, and he was assisted care. He could talk and he could do some basic feeding for himself at at one point, and he called Harvey a faggot. Oh, no. Uh, So they had a strained relationship. No, No doubt. Eventually apparently he he started to accept Harvey and it was by then that Harvey decided he needed to die and he put cyanide in in his uh, NG tube feed bag and it was ruled as pneumonia Margaret Cuckrow 78 years old February 1987 cerebral hemorrhages semi-conscious fed her cyanide and orange juice Joe Pike palliative care ah he used this um 
it's like gooby gone okay. an adhesive remover called uh dedicol very very painful oh, yeah, yeah yeah i know i think yeah, yeah. yeah and i it think was, it's basically the same chemical component i'm not sure yeah and um it was it's, it's a very painful way to die mm. so he he fed him that in a drink um yeah, nice he also did this to Hilda Leitz, 82 years old. She was a failure to thrive, chronic infections, and he um, fed her the OJ. Sorry, he he poured it in some OJ and fed that to her. Oh, now, I mean, it causes OJ. severe nausea and vomiting and respiratory failure. Like, it's it's a horrible, horrible way to die. Um, next was Stella Lemon, chronic illnesses, uh, cyanide and orange juice. Uh, but it, she died weeks later, but it was all related to cyanide poisoning. So when they, you know, reviewed everything in her symptoms, that's what they, you know, believed that it was. Is cyanide the one like when, when like the spies get caught and then they bite on a pill and they foam at the mouth and yeah. they die? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, he made a list of his victims. I can't remember if that was cyanide or arsenic. No. Okay. Cyanide. So what he had been doing at this point is that he was making a list of his victims and also making a list of patients that potentially he wanted to kill. And on this list that he kept hidden behind the mirror of his house were 24 names and they had been put on that in only 13 months. So he was killing two people a month and some he was doing in, in clusters. Mm-hmm. So next we're going to talk about the mistake that got him caught donald picked john powell to be his next victim during a satanic ceremony like he had done for many of his other victims so what he had was four candles lined up four names and when he spoke the name if the candle flickered that was duncan telling him to kill that person oh, was duncan blowing on the candle <laughs> yeah i guess so that's what happened it was the flicker of a candle that uh, led the to this man fate. being murdered yeah. On March 7th, 1987, Harvey murdered John Powell. He was a 44-year-old man that had been in a really bad motorcycle accident. He had a um, traumatic brain injury. Met, uh, he had a, they removed portions of his brain. You know, um, he, he just, he was on life support, critical condition. Trach, G-tube, catheter, IV, and he was not a, a, a candidate for rehab and he was deter- deteriorating. People that have that are this sick and have all these like supportive um, things going on often get many, many uh, infections, pneumonia, UTIs, things like that. Um, so he was there being treated for uh, septicemia and he did have a DNR. At eight o'clock that morning, Harvey had a vial of cyanide on him. He put half of the vial into his G-tube, and Powell was dead five minutes later. He reported it to the nurse on duty in that, um, in that house, and she went in the room, vital signs absent. He was a DNR. She then reported it to a Dr. Sakar, who was on duty at the time, and he listed his time of death as 8.05. Harvey poured out the rest of the cyanide into the sink, and then he carried on with his duties. Now, Annette asked him to help prepare the body for the morgue. So then he removed all the supportive equipment, the cannulas, the tubes, and he threw them into the garbage. The thing is, an autopsy had to be performed 
because this was considered like an insurance case, you know. Uh, oh, right, because he was in a, he was in an accident. Yeah, right, right. Uh, a coroner's case, but Donald wasn't worried because he said, "Well, I wouldn't I haven't been caught before? Would I? Why would I be caught now? And why would they do a toxicology on him?" So. Before the autopsy was done, the attending physician wrote down that his cause of death was pneumonia or pulmonary um, embolism related to traumatic brain injury. Right place, right time. The forensic pathologist that did the autopsy was Dr. Lee Lehman. He studied cyanide poisonings after the Chicago uh, cyanide uh, poisonings. You remember that there was Tylenol that was laced with cyanide? Oh, okay. And this is before you had like your, your little some, cellophane. Some, somebody did that on purpose? Yeah, yeah. It was a huge thing in Chicago. Um, there was Tylenol that had been laced, like I said, with cyanide. And people were taking it home and taking some thing for, you know, pain and then dying. Okay. So he'd studied this. So he knew the Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah. Poison. So he, yeah, he, he was like, okay, we need to find a way um, to study the sensitivity of this for pathologists and uh, morgue attendants. They need to know that during an autopsy, the person has been poisoned. What is the, the threshold where the person working there can get poisoned? And it's a huge um, hazard for morgue employees. So, so here's the thing. So, cyanide reacts with water. And even if there's moisture in the air, it will react to it and it will turn into a, a poisonous gas. Okay. So oh, that's why. Cool. So if they open someone up, it comes out. It just has to be humid in the room. Okay. And the thing is, cyanide has a distinctive smell of bitter almonds. So you can't mistake in it when you smell it. And, but unless you don't know what the smell is, you're like, you don't even think about it. You're like, oh, okay. Dead body smell? Yeah, yeah. So Dead person smell? On Sunday, March 8th, he did the autopsy. He just expected to find, you know, brain damage or something that would have caused him to die. He opened up his abdominal ca cavity and smelt bitter almonds. And he's like, okay, well, wait a minute here. So he took samples of his blood, stomach contents, and body other body fluids. He sent the blood samples off for toxicology for cyanide. The test came back positive. Mm -hmm. um, he also did an absolute meticulous autopsy this is just the kind of guy that he was but just you know okay because i smelt this does i think he's been murdered however i'm gonna do this meticulous autopsy mm -hmm. so he reported it to the coroner dr frank cleveland who called the lieutenant bill fletcher who launched an immediate investigation there were four uh, investigator sergeants assigned to this um and then they did an investigation where they tested the food supply at the hospital that came back negative, uh, tried to trace back to um, manufacturers of, say, uh, like, what's that uh, nutritive drink that you can, Onsure, like, the, you know, oh, that, right. that we're okay. providing that. Um, they interviewed his wife because bills were piling. They think, okay, well, she'd have a reason, but she passed the polygraph. She was not a suspect. They went over visitors' logs with a fine-tooth comb, and anybody that had visited or anybody that had been in contact with them, including Donald Harvey. So they started to dig into his 
past. Mm-hmm. They saw, you know, his work history, suspicious reasons for leaving, being fired for having a gun in his duffel bag and a piece of liver in his locker with a little bit of Chianti and fava beans. No. <laughs> um, rumors about stealing body parts while working at the VA hospital, the satanic rituals. And so why this was happening, he was at his uh, trailer trying to get rid of as much evidence as possible. <laughs> uh, and he was also making a plan to get out of there. So he had um, had himself his own bottle of cyanide to take to commit suicide if the heat came down. He also thought of killing a person that looked like him, putting his jewelry and stuff on him, burning him, faking his death and stealing their identity. But then he was like, I don't know how well that would work. And he also took up $1,500 just so he could bolt. So he heard about the staff taking polygraph tests and he's like, "Uh oh, and he bought a book on how to beat one. But then when the time came for him, he's like, no, I'm not doing it. The police were like, what? What do you mean you're not doing it? He said, well, will you come down and be interviewed? He's like, okay. So he was interviewed by two sergeants, one Jim Lawson and Ron Camden. They did the whole good cop, bad cop thing. And eventually he confessed. He said that he killed John Powell because he felt sorry for him and no one should have to live in that with that kind of misery and that it was a mercy killing. And he said that John Powell was the only one that he killed. Now the police go to his trailer. They find 30 pounds of cyanide. <laughs> 30 pounds. Like how... And how dangerous is that for them? Like, I'd be fucking out the door and hazmat suit, please, and gas mask and shit. He found, they found jars of arsenic, books on the occult, materials for performing satanic rituals, various other poisons in his diary. But 30 pounds of damn cyanide. (sighs) On April 6th, 1987, he was charged with one count of aggravated murder. He was arrested. He pled not guilty by reason of insanity. And his attorney was William Whalen. He actually wrote a book, um, one of the ones that I uh, used to uh, research, um, called Defending Donald Harvey. He was held on $200,000 bail. That was That's a pretty significant amount. For then, yeah. Um, a comp- I was a bit confused by that the title of that book when you were reading it. I was like, defending? Why would you defend this guy? He was, But he meant like he was his actual attorney. Yeah, defending, yeah. Like how it was to defend somebody who was so nutso. Mm-hmm. Um, so he had a competency hearing and the Dr. Schmidt-Gosling and uh, clinical psychologist Roger Fisher said that he was depressed but sane. He could not plead sanity, plead insanity because um, he could tell right from wrong. He was not psychotic. Oh, no. This guy totally knew what he was doing. Oh, of course doing. he did. Now, there was a news frenzy. All, like, reporters from everywhere were all over this. But they weren't investigating it. They were just reporting it. Except for an investigative journalist by the name of Pat Menarson. And it's, he's, he became quite famous because of this case. He was an investigative journalist, but at this point he was mostly, um, he was an anchor. And he thought, you know what, there is more to this than meets the eye here. And he wanted to conduct his own investigation. So he just got permission and started digging into it. So four days after the initial reports, he received an anonymous phone call from a woman, presumably a nurse that worked at the Drake Memorial Hospital. And she gave him a list of potential victims. 
of Donald Harvey's. And the next day, the woman called again with two other women. So in fact, they were nurses, the three of them, and they were able to provide more names. Now, these women tried to report it to their supervisor and they just completely dismissed it and told them to keep their mouth shut. So this was nurses probably that saw this pattern. Yes. Of, of people always dying when he was on exactly. the ship. Yeah. yeah. And so, but the nurses feared losing their jobs and maybe getting sued. So they wanted to stay anonymous, but all it was, it wasn't evidence. There was, it was just hearsay. Um, he got copies of the death certificates, but they were useless because they were all listed as natural causes. The nurses contacted him a third time, and this time there was five of them. And they gave him a list of 33 victims, possible victims. He obtained the death certificates of all 33, but still they were all listed as natural death. Um, and he was super frustrated. Like, he, it's obvious this guy's doing it. So what he, he did is he took all the dates, all the deaths, and cross-referenced them to staff working. Donald came up on pretty much every single one, except for maybe he worked the next day. Like he had part, part poisoned the person the night before they died the next day, that kind of thing. But he was all around this and in this. And this was pretty solid circumstantial evidence. So he went to Donald's lawyer, William Whalen, and he told him, and Whalen's like, he's kind of, you know, irritated by this. He said, the hospital reports and the police reports say nothing of this but it was bugging him and so even though he was his attorney he's just like you know what's the harm i'm just going to ask him so he asked flat out asked harvey if he killed anybody else and he said yeah <laughs> so he was expecting him to say like maybe two or three more murders but he was absolutely shocked like, he was floored because harvey said to him that he had killed around 70. Jesus. <laughs> well, I mean, and he and realizes then, that this, his, his this, client is, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say at this point, I mean, they pretty much have him dead to rights with, with Powell's murder, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because well, he's the, confessed to it. Well, and, and the, and plus the autopsy and the cyanide, like it was like, yeah. And they found it in his house. Like, right. yeah, it, it all like for, yeah. Like he was, he was going away for going that. Going away for one. You may as well. Call, yeah. As well he's like, yeah. So he's like, okay, so this is not an angel of, of death or angel of, of mercy here. That. No. I have a serial killer now. So you go from like, I got to, this is an angel of mercy. This is what we're going to, this is how we're going to angle it. And it's like, oh, fuck. I have a sociopath. He's a serial killer. So now he had to figure out how he was going to keep his client off of death row. Uh, the evidence was mounting. It was just, you know, there was no getting away from it. So he decided to offer, they decided to offer the prosecutor a plea deal. And uh, so the prosecutor, Art Ney, was open to the discussion. He said, okay, tell me what you've got. And he accepted the plea deal with one condition and one condition only. He's like, you have to recount all your murders in full detail, telling 100% of the truth or it's off the table. You're getting the electric chair. Um, and Whalen said that to to Harvey, like, no, don't fuck around and find out on this one. Just do it. Because at this point, it's a matter of whether you're going to live or die. So he did. He, uh, and everything they checked and cross-referenced, as far as they could tell, was he was telling the I truth. I wondered if they exhumed any bodies. No, they didn't. Okay. 
So, but that's why you, all those names I read, mm-hmm. the only reason I know any of those, the details on those, because this is the stuff he wrote down and said he did. So that's part of another reason why I wanted to read off who they were, because those were like basically verbatim facts from Harvey himself. So on August 18th, 1987, Donald Harvey pled guilty to one count of felonious assault, four counts of attempted murder, 36 counts of aggravated murder. He got three 20 years to life sentences. I don't know why only three. Whatever. I guess a lot of times they say it's redundant after that because he's going away for for life anyway, right? Um, And he was fined $270,000. So then, so that was for the in Cincinnati. So now they moved to Hamilton County. Um, In 1988, he was indicted for three more murders and got 20 years to life for all three and three attempted murders and he got 10 to 25 for three. Then on September 6, 1988, he agreed to confess to his murders at Marymount Hospital, and he confessed them on tape. He confessed to 13 murders. He was only convicted of nine because they could only prove nine. Um, And he got life imprisonment for each. And it was believed that in total that he killed 87 people over 17 years. 87 people, and I'm sure it was more. Yeah. But 87 people and... He was able to do it for 17 years. He started to murder at 18. Yeah. Wait, did he... Did he... So his whole career, except for like a five-year period in between. So even take that away. So over 12 years, he murdered 87 people. That's if, in fact, he did stop. Did he... I'm wondering if he admitted to the neighbors and shit like that. Well, the only reason we know about the other things is because he confessed to it. Oh, okay, okay. So everything we've learned... He just readily confessed to everything. Yeah. So it wasn't just people in the hospital. He No, friends, family, you name it. Um, on March 28th, 2017, an unarmed person entered Donald's cell and beat him nearly to death. And he died two days later from the injuries at 67 years old. And there you have it. Wow. That's crazy. Quite the little road trip I took you on, huh? <laughs> Lots of twists and turns. Lots of cyanide. She had 30 pounds. It's just this story got more and more bizarre. Mm-hmm. There must be some movies or series and stuff about him as well, too, right? Oh, yeah. One of the clips I, I gave before, um, John Douglas, remember? He's like the father of behavioral science uh, at the FBI. Okay. Uh, father of, you know, finding serial killers and stuff like that. He was one of the ones that actually came up with the term serial killer. Uh, he had his own show for a while and he had interviewed different murderers and he had interviewed uh, Donald Harvey. Um, I think I put it, the interview in the links in my show notes, but I'll put it there again okay. if not. Um, but uh, yeah, so him... And then there's all, you know, little, it was a show where they showcase two people. So you can find a few things here and there um, mm-hmm. uh, from him. And uh, there's a ton of articles, books, that kind of stuff. So, um, again, I list those in the show notes, the stuff that I, uh, um, I used to, to, to research to do this episode. So. I'm just thinking about his parents, you know, they're like, you can't come back in this house because we uh, don't approve of your homosexuality. Maybe you should have disapproved of his homicidal mania. <laughs> Maybe you should have disapproved of him being raped from four years old on. Yeah. 
and uh, completely ignoring him and dropping him on his head um, when he was an infant and not taking him to to get uh, treatment. I mean, he was kind of, I don't want to say doomed, but, you know, he didn't start, it started off really bad from him for the very beginning. Then there's that crosswords point where, you know. Well, you can see early on, too, there were times where he tried tried to kill himself. I don't know how committed he was to those, but if he really felt like, I'm a bad person, I shouldn't live anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, uh. You'll never know because even in interviews and all that kind of stuff, he was just sort of this happy-go-lucky, gregarious guy. Like he was very superficial. I mean, mm-hmm. serial killers, psychopaths, sociopaths do, are. Do you, do you think he really believed that he was alleviating people's suffering, or do you think he just had a compulsion to kill people? I I think both. I think that he liked to present himself as being an angel of mercy, but he. I don't think that was the case. I think in some cases, maybe he felt that way, but he killed far too many, first of all. And he also killed or tried to kill people that had nothing to do with being critically ill in a hospital. True. How many people did he kill outside the hospital or tried to kill? Mm -hmm. So maybe there was a tiny bit that thought he was, you know, helping people. But no, you know what? I, I, I just think this is the persona, you know, that he, he puts out there. I think he's just, uh, what for whatever reason, his uh, he had no conscience. He was a sociopath. Whether that started from birth um, or it, it got worse as, you know, he was, how he was brought up and the, the traumas he experienced. But um, we all know that's the the good question the that always is, is put out there. When, when speaking of these things, nature, nature versus nurture, nature, nurture, both. Mm. It's fascinating stuff. It's horrible, but it's it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's today. That's Ooh. the end of today's I need episode. A nap. <laughs> that was intense. It was intense. So uh, yeah, that's that's the end of uh, today's episode with Donald Harvey. And um, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. If you want to discuss this or just have a bit of fun, go check out our Facebook group. Shock, shock, shock and chucka chucka. No, stat, shocking traumas and treatments. <laughs> Join the group. Shaka. They're awesome. Shaka. Yeah. And if you're interested in supporting the show outside of your already awesome listenership, uh, maybe you can check out our Patreon page. There are lots of extra episodes on there and some nice perks. So that's also stat shocking traumas and treatments. There's a link on the Facebook page and in the show notes here. If you are cruising on by uh, iTunes uh, or podcast, iPodcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, and you feel like leaving a review, I love the reviews. I really do. And it uh, warms my little heart. So if you feel like leaving a review, that would be great. So yeah, that's that's it for today. And thank you, everybody. Um, I hope you're all doing well. And uh, you're loving each other, taking care of each other. But most importantly, loving and taking care of yourself. Peace. One love. One love.
True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill ya. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stat.